0: Modern.
1: Modern. Modern. Modern.
0: We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why
1: don't you make that a double? Modern
0: Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 254 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I'm joined by Ryan Chathiawardana. He's the bar owner, author, creativity guru, and proud former barback, responsible for some of the most innovative bar programs in the world, including the Lion Portfolio with locations on multiple continents and Seed Library in East London. You may also know him from his recent cocktail masterclass, which he created in tandem with Speed Rack co-founder Lynette Marrero, his book, Good Things to Drink with Mr. Lion and Friends, or his numerous drinks industry awards with titles like World's Best Bar, Spirits Communicator of the Year, and International Bartender of the Year. But before we explore the influences and methods that allow Ryan to push the bar industry in new and exciting directions, let's take a pause so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Mexican Firing Squad. To make it, you'll need 2 ounces of tequila, 3 quarters of an ounce of lime juice, 3 quarters of an ounce of grenadine, and 5 dashes of Angostura bitters. Combine these ingredients in a cocktail shaker with ice, give them a good hard shake until the contents are chilled and properly diluted, then strain into a rocks glass over ice, garnish with a lime wheel and enjoy. First published in Charles H. Baker's book titled The Gentleman's Companion or Around the World with Jigger, Beaker, and Flask, this cocktail was said to have been discovered in Mexico City in 1937 and is ostensibly a daisy variant that skews less sweet and more sour than most, but benefits from the rosy hue of grenadine and the herbal complexity of Angostura bitters. I wanted to feature this cocktail because I think it shines a beautiful light on the creative process of Ryan and his team. They've served a version of it at Dandelion called the Mexican Firing Squad 2.0. This rendition keeps the tequila and lime juice, but swaps out the Angostura bitters for a combo of mole bitters and chili liqueur, and then employs an agar gel clarification technique, something out of reach for most home bartenders, to create a tomato grenadine. And hopefully, as you listen to our conversation, you'll almost be able to envision how this creative process went. Baker's books are known for being extremely colorful, filled with the kinds of bizarre details and fanciful stories that fuel Ryan's creative framework. So he's in this bizarre book. He comes across this somewhat lopsided tequila daisy recipe from 1937 and says, how can we have fun with this drink? Mole Bitters and Ancho Reyes were popular, definitely at the time, so they're logical choices, but how can he get in there and mess with the notion of a grenadine? Unfortunately, I wasn't a fly on the wall observing the conversations and experiments that led to the Mexican firing squad 2.0, so I can't tell you where the notion of a tomato grenadine came from but I can say that it both preserved the visual identity of the cocktail as a rosy-hued daisy on the rocks while simultaneously advancing the conversation about savory preparations with trademark playfulness and whimsy. So, now that you've got a brief sample of the kinds of drink moves that Mr. Lyon is known for, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this conversation with drinks entrepreneur and educator, Ryan Chethiwardana, some of the topics we discuss include the origin story of the name Mr. Lion and how Ryan's family relationships with movers and shakers in the design and fashion world influenced the wide scope and inclusive lens of his bar project. Ryan's framework for creativity and drink creation, which incorporates input at all levels of the bar team and thrives on the diversity of experience and passion from bar managers bartenders, and even barbacks. How the question of privilege in the cocktail world has led Ryan to explore everything from eliminating ice from his bar program to using the less desirable cuts of citrus to exploring the role of sea level rise in a recent bar menu. We also explore how he thinks about cocktail education, including his recent cocktail masterclass with Lynette Morero and the one key teaching about balance, that might just cause you to rethink the way you approach drink design. Along the way, we gloss over a few other boring little details, like how to use moon rocks as gin botanicals, the decimal point that launched a thousand spinach enterprises, where to grab a drink with David Bowie in London, and much, much more. This conversation, of course, is the one that I teased in our recent Year in Review episode. And even if you've never heard of Ryan or visited one of his bars, I think you'll very quickly come to understand why his approach to the creative process has been and continues to be so influential in the cocktail world. If you like what you hear during this episode, there's numerous ways to go deeper and learn even more from Ryan including perusing his book and his masterclass, which we'll link to in the show notes, and by visiting his website, Mr. Lion, that's spelled L-Y-A-N, dot com. But for now, I hope you enjoy spending a pleasant hour with me and Mr. Lyon himself, Ryan Awardana. Ryan, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. Very excited to be here.
0: So in brief, uh, which may be difficult... But as well as you could, could you please just quickly introduce yourself to our listeners who might not be familiar with you and your work? Uh, Who are you and what do you do? Of
1: course. Um, So, I'm a bartender based in London, um, and I've been in the industry for over 20 years, covered as many parts of the industry I could during that time, originally in kitchens, doing everything from dive bars to nightclubs to fine dining. Um, And, you know, I've been doing the line company for the last 10 years of that. So, we have bars two in London. Uh, we also have our creative studio, Miss Lion Studio, in London. Um, so we have Lioness and Seed Library here. Then we have S- Super Lion over in Amsterdam and Silver Lion in Washington D.C.
0: Yes. So I, I think the the logical question to to answer from here, and then maybe we'll dive into a little bit more of of your journey. But what is what is a lion? Knowing that as I do, it is spelled L Y A N.
1: <laughs> well, I think it's. It, it, it comes from a family uh, kind of like nickname, and the thinking behind it came from you know when we were first starting out the company, I was doing it with my sisters, and the plan was always to try and do things in quite a wide sense. The, the The vision was to try and push the boundaries of where food and drink operated, the style of people that we could work with, the type of work that we could do, the places we could operate. So inevitably that was trying to aim quite wide. And we wanted to have something that tied all the projects together. And as a family project, we wanted it to be quite personal. Um, and given the, you know, complication of my surname, you know, it's as long as Schwarzenegger and, you know, people often would just go Ryan C and kind of abbreviate it and not necessarily kind of create that link. Um, we wanted something that felt a little bit more kind of ownable and lions are made up word. And it was literally a like kind of playful take on my name when we were kids, you know, people would just rhyme Ryan and Lion. You know, there was little drawings that we found from when I was a kid. We're pulling out stuff from my mum's house, and we found these kind of illustrations, and it's just listing that Ryan Lion. And so it was my sister's kind of brainwave of going, well, because it's a made-up word, spell L Y A N. It's the only thing that it does is link to us. So it's a nice way of having these different projects that give people a kind of a sense of the connection even all of the things that we do try and take on a different character and address different things, there is a kind of like thread through the ball. Um, so by using that lion word, we, we get to link them all together.
0: Yeah, that's brilliant. Well, c- clearly your sister has the uh, the the native mind of an intellectual property attorney because I remember <laughs> when I worked for a did marketing for a, a law firm that was like the the thing that they emphasized most is like yeah if you, if you if you can find a unique way to spell and sort of encapsulate something like that even if it seems a little odd to people it's a going to be memorable and b going to be eminently copyrightable and protectable. So from a branding standpoint, it, it seems like you you know you you, you latched onto that from the start, uh, can you talk a little bit more about your relationship with your sisters? I guess that's, that's something that in my research, I, I didn't really encounter as much of. So I'd love if you could talk about how this project with, you know, opening these bars and, uh, casting, as you said, a wide net, kind of a, a, a wide aperture or scope of your hospitality project and, and kind of relates to not just your interests and skills, but also theirs.
1: Absolutely. Um, I think a key benefit was, you know, the fact that they weren't from the industry. My, my sister, Natasha, is a legit prodigy. And both her and Karen were, were hugely successful. Um, Karen is, you know, she's part of the family, but she's not a blood relationship. My, Natasha is my, my true sister. But, you know, they both, you know, Natasha in, in kind of innovation and she was a designer by kind of like training and she was hugely successful. And Karen was, was in, in fashion. And, you know, they both, I suppose, got close to the industry by coming to visit me when I was working in bars. And, you know, as young, successful women who had disposable income and wanted to be able to kind of go out and enjoy nice things, they loved coming to the bars and, you know, hearing about the little quirks and me playing with different ingredients to suit their moods and palates. And I think they, you know, there is an infectiousness to being around or not just in our industry and so we we always talked about kind of doing something together because i think we all observed that as much as the, you know the drinks were wonderful and like those ingredients were magical the stories were incredible you know there was a very narrow set of bars at that time you know this is this is going back a number of years and you know one of the frustrations they had as as young successful people was going you know why do we get lectured coming into a cocktail bar? Why do we have to sit down and listen to only this a certain type of music? And, you know, why do things feel quite kind of opaque to people if you're not part of the the kind of in the know kind of cocktail geek crowd? And, you know, it was a major influence on on a lot of the work that we were trying to do is going, you know, how do we make cocktails accessible to the every person, not just to to kind of those who are passionate about it already or working with it? And, you know, they're their influence on that, the idea of trying to open it up, but also you know their creative outlook and their their ability to to think on what feels important or relevant to to kind of a wider audience was was hugely in, in kind of inspirational to me from somebody who was working kind of more directly with the product. Um, you know, I always cared about you know looking at things wider and the general hospitality aspect of it. That was what was important to me, but working with them who weren't part of the industry, it just, it created so much of the vision of what the line company became.
0: That's really, really fascinating. And, you know, when I, when I interview people who like yourself have, 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 gone on to create a number of bars or have won awards and have been recognized for, you know, the achievements that they've had in the bar space at large over a period of time. One of the things that I try to do, especially when I hear stories like that from the earlier or uh, perhaps transformative days of like really having the, the company or the brand image kind of crystallize is I try to think about, you know, the the history of the cocktail renaissance starting with mm. you know some of the early moments like milk and honey in new york around the year 2000 and and then kind of ramping up and so it seems like what you're doing is you're placing yourself you know at this moment in time where as you mentioned like cocktails had become a you know an important thing in the cultural consciousness but still to a relatively small group of people and I am so glad I asked about your <laughs> your sister Natasha and then your your friend Karen because it seems like having them constantly buzzing around the edges and coming in and seeing and bringing new groups of people in was uh, like a useful input in terms of you know some creative vision as as you, as you went forward. So that that's really interesting to hear. I'm hoping that we could now shift our attention solely back to you. And, you know, you started out doing, you know, some of the the humbler jobs in the hospitality industry, as I understand it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if you can trace the through line between where you began and how you ended up doing things like playing with all these alternative flavors and strange at the time ingredients and doing things that were, you know, sort of bending people's brains, you know, how how did that, (laughs) how did that, uh, trajectory work for you?
1: Uh, I mean, I think there is aspects of like the early days of my career that, you know, they might seem, uh, unrelated to how I then started working with flavors, but it still kind of sets out the whole vision to me of, of, how and why I work in the industry, and you know, when I first started as a as a kitchen porter, or you know, ending up as a barback, and my first roles within the 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 kind of the bar side of the industry, so much to me was the the clearest thing was how interconnected all of the parts of the business are, and how you need everybody to feel ownership and everybody to feel included in the work, because you know, no restaurant no bar operates without all of those layers you know it might seem that you just notice the the kind of the front line that bartender that head chef or wherever it might be but actually the most crucial aspects are you know intertwined with with everything down to you know the 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 way you receive goods so to me it was it was really important to build the structure from that level up and you know to me it's still my favorite part to do if i'm ever in the bars is to is to bar back to me, it's it's the the crucial bit to to kind of set out was the the structure of the business. And the way that we organized the bars was to operate like a kitchen, you know, the way that we did prep, but the way that we included everybody into the process was was the most important thing for me. And that enabled us to have such a wide creative outlook. Because we were kind of sourcing, you know, the industry draws on so many different backgrounds. It's one of the most kind of fascinating things about the food and drink sphere. But by being able to to kind of build that structure and have everybody take ownership and be empowered to input, it meant that we were, you know, our creative process was take very lateral perspectives, but use everybody's input. So it didn't matter if you were with us for a week or you're a barback or a host or somebody who was traditionally not part of the creative movement. We were able to to use their insights, their interests, their passions to guide the stories and from there, we could extrapolate flavors and balance and do all those other bits. But by including everybody and by looking at things from this more holistic point of view, I think that's what allowed us to to use these weird ingredients and for them not to be gimmicky. You know, they'd started out and they'd been included because of this genuine connection to them or this kind of insight that had come from, from all of these different kind of backgrounds or perspectives.
0: Right, right. And can you just briefly explain what you mean by saying, you said just a moment ago, take very lateral perspectives. What do you mean by (laughs) lateral? Is that lateral relative to the prevailing trend of the time? So sort of like sidestepping what's popular or is that something else?
1: No, it's probably something else. I mean, I don't think that we purposefully shy away from um, things that are popular. We, We certainly don't like repeating ourselves, but it's not that we're going, oh, we've got to do something that's different. But I think the way that we include flavors is is not by starting with flavor, if that makes sense. You know, what we'll try and do is I'm going to try and give a, a concrete example. Um, actually, the, the, the one that came to mind because I just I included it in a talk. So it's it's, it's one fresh is uh, a drink that we had in D.C. I don't know if you had a chance to try it at Silverline was a, on our opening menu. It was a drink called the Project Apollo. And not that I think this is a particularly great example, but it just comes to mind because it was kind of included in their talk. And, you know, we were within the chapters of Silver Lion's kind of menu. It was all about the exchange of ideas and and what happens when you get that growth where different perspectives mix. And, you know, the, the influence of that cultural exchange, we were looking at things that went almost beyond Earth. And the Apollo missions you know were were a great example of that, you know a, a key part of the Americas, and an amazing thing that happened to to kind of shift a global a, a, a species perspective on things and During the project Apollo missions, they you know they started to to kind of understand that right practicality was key. you got to get people in space, but you know taking food up there couldn't just be about the sustenance. They realized that the astronauts were going through something really grueling and, you know, they needed joy back in their life. And they did a kind of bit of research on on what kind of created this sense of exoticism or joy or connection to Earth. And, And one of the key ones was pineapple. So we drew that from the story and we started to include it. We looked at some of the first things that came back from the Apollo missions where they took samples back from the moon, the moon rocks. And we looked at that data. We looked at the things that were relevant to the food world. We recreated that minerality into a gin so we kind of took took on that profile but again that needed to kind of create a balance in the drink so you had this big tropical note from the pineapple you had this minerality coming from these additions of various different salts and minerals that were going into the gin and then we used ironwort which was the you know i suppose the namesake of apollo it was the, the the herb of the gods from the the kind of greek mythology side which has this kind of almost, it's a member of the sage family, it's kind of herbal green note to it. So it's starting to paint the picture of the drink and balance it out. And then the final one was, they did some analysis on these missions. And one of the things that they found was a compound called ethyl formate, which is a key component in raspberries. So one of the wonderful kind of like things that we found was space smells like raspberries. So we included that as a kind of dust over the top. So you had this drink that we didn't really... You know, because we were telling these stories of these Apollo missions, it wasn't that there was obvious flavors that came out of it. By being able to look into those stories, we were able to compile a drink that you know drank a little bit like a Clover Club. Um, you know, it was a it was a fluffy sour, approachable, but it had layers of complexity to it, and it had a reason for including all of those flavors rather than it just being we're going to throw this together and that's going to be um, the, the resulting cocktail.
0: I love that example because I think it's such a, a wonderful case study in drink design that doesn't involve the sort of what grows together, goes together motif, right? Because moon rocks don't grow next to pineapples (laughs) and, you know, so that there's, there's, there's a number of, number of issues there, but you know, when you simply, you know, back out, maybe, you know, take the, uh, you know, step, step several steps back and, and take the maybe global planetary perspective on what is this drink. Well, it turns out that it's, you know, relatively similar to a clover club. So I, I think that's a, a wonderful way to describe it. And actually, this is a great, a great opportunity for me to bring out my first contact with you, which is I've got my, my notes here from 2016 Tales of the Cocktail, Um, amazing! and, uh, it's a, it was a seminar called what's in my drink beyond flavors and tastes. And I don't have a list of the people who were in this seminar. I don't know if it was you in particular who were in the seminar, but certainly one of your bartenders, uh, Ian Griffiths was, was in this this seminar.
1: Yeah. We, I think that year between Ian and I, we did 13 seminars or something ludicrous like that. Um, yeah. so it, it, it's even hard for me to work out because our consciousness flow between each other at that point.
0: Um, yeah, so, so I, I just, I have, I have notes here, you know, from this seminar, uh, talking about, you know, t- uh, trigeminal flavors yeah. like carbonation and spice. Uh, you have a, a helpful little mnemonic here, mouth mouthfeel. Uh, aroma, taste, trigeminal. You were talking about cinnamaldehyde, capsaicin, allyl isothiocyanate, also known as uh, uh ait aitc. I think is is the the horseradish one there. Um, and so it was. It, this is this was my first, um, I, I suppose, access point to. To you and to some of the stories about you know what was going on uh, across the pond at that time, um, you know with uh, you know with dandelion and some of the other properties. So. Can I, I? I guess with that as an input, you know, maybe maybe you can channel Ian and some of the the work that you did together at some of these properties. What were some of the the things that you did, or the concept at these bars that ended up being particularly meaningful or resonant to people, especially at the time? And I'm I'm thinking about you know in particular the decision to completely eschew the use of fresh citrus, for example.
1: Yeah, I mean there was. There was a lot of motivations behind some of those moves. Um, And again, I talked about gimmick to begin with. And I think a lot of the things that, you know, you you might hear about some of this stuff that sounded really scientific or, you know, it sounded very, almost like a two fingers up to the industry. We're not going to use ice or citrus or brands or any of those things. And actually the motivation was to, you know, out of a love for the industry, trying to encourage people to realize that we could do things differently. You know, White Lion was an exercise in you know the pillars behind it were sustainability, professionalism. How what is the role of a bartender? And also, you know, why do we have to kind of make drinks using the same set of ingredients? And with Dandelion, it was almost the the expansion of that as going. You know, why do we use the same set of ingredients? But you know, when nature provides so much variety, why are we limiting ourselves? So it was kind of two sides of the same coin, but. the 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 kind of idea behind them was to to kind of push ourselves the public the industry to to kind of think differently to kind of step outside our comfort zone to start to explore and kind of embrace what food could be in a wider sense but i think the the thing around a lot of them is you know the the most important thing to me about those bars was was never the products of what we did it was the experience of it you know i think people did hear about some of these weird ingredients and they would think it would be a temple to the cocktail when they came to the bar and it'd be this heavy kind of science lesson. And the thing I always loved about, you know, people's experience of going to any of the lion venues was they were like, Oh my God, this was so fun. This was really enjoyable. I had a great night out and yes, the drinks were delicious. And that comment of yes, the drinks were delicious was, was kind of my favorite thing. It was all of these things were tools. Like, you know, we have beautiful rooms. We put a lot of effort into the the music, the like, you know, the, the lighting, the ambience, all of those things. The drinks, of course, we put a load of work into them, but they were all consequences of just trying to help people have a great time. Of course, I was really happy to see certain things kind of resonate. I mean, I remember when we first did White Lion, it was it was seen as this absolutely heretic idea. And then you know people were saying that with bottle cocktails we were ruining the theatre the of a bar, and you know it was complete blasphemy to to the, all of the craft cocktail work they'd been going in before. And then I think about a year later, I judged twenty bottle cocktail competitions around the world, and you started to see the idea of sustainability become much more mainstream. You saw, um, you know, the the way in which you use language on the menu. How did you change the interactions you could have as a bartender start to you know become complex. And then even ingredients like you know beeswax and pine and ambergris and waxes of uh, uh, various different styles become they didn't seem so alien anymore and not that we were the only people responsible for for ushering in that change but it was wonderful to see those things stop becoming weird and that was a major reason why we kind of you know ended up morphing both of those two bars but i think the yeah the 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 things that I was kind of glad to see change and, and kind of spread wider was kind of a bit of the sense of fun coming back into cocktail bars, you know, bars that were craft cocktail bars didn't feel like they had to just be ultra serious all the time. Um, And that was a, again, not, we were not in any way like the, the, the kind of key impetus for that, but it was that, that was to me one of the most wonderful things I saw kind of spread during that period.
0: Yeah. Well, this this brings me to another question. I think you've actually just set it up quite nicely because we, we've we mentioned this notion of, you know, uh, sort of the stiff, very formal, what we might call the, the speakeasy-style cocktail bars that were popular early in the cocktail renaissance. And, you know, when you walk into those places, obviously you're a student of... Atmosphere and ambiance, having needed to create it in different ways throughout all of your different properties over the years, and I think you'll agree with me that when you walk into one of these speakeasy-style cocktail bars, it's meant to evoke a, a feeling of, of privilege. It, it's it's mm-hmm. sort of like you know the, the, it's luxury. It's yeah. it's not necessarily like a speakeasy actually was during Prohibition yeah. here in the U.S. Perhaps it is maybe a little bit more victorian or something yeah, like that yeah. it's yeah, colo- <laughs> very colonial right uh-huh. and even to this day i mean some of the amazing hotel cocktail bars in asia they're still like very uh, very heavily tied to their colonial roots so i see this this notion of stiffness and privilege and sort of like luxury being here and the implication if we're saying, well, you know, if you're going to go out and have great cocktails, you're going to go to one of these speakeasy style places and it's going to be, you know, somewhat formal. And and (laughs) yes, you're going to get lectured like, uh, like (laughs) Natasha and Karen said, on the other hand, if you want to go out and have a fun night out, well, okay, the cocktails, the drinks aren't going to be great. You're going to have to go to a lower class establishment and, but you're probably going to go have a blast. And then, you know, um, I I spent a little, a little bit of time in the UK. So I know that, you know, after one of those nights out, you get some nice kebab. Um, (laughs) this episode is brought to you by near country provisions. Yep. You've heard me singing their praises for the past year now. And to answer a question I'm frequently asked, yes, I still do a little happy dance when my monthly subscription shows up at my door on dry ice and in an insulated bag. I want to highlight a couple aspects of Near Country that normally take the backseat to their meat quality and their impeccable local sourcing, those being affordability and customization. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the price of groceries lately, but the cost of meat, even the factory farm stuff, has been skyrocketing. But because Near Country keeps things local to the Mid-Atlantic, your meat doesn't have to travel far, and it doesn't change hands half a dozen times before it hits shelves, meaning you don't have to pay for all those markups from middlemen. Every time I do a price comparison between Near Country and the grocery store, I'm blown away by the quality that I'm getting relative to the cost. And when it comes to flexibility, I've never worked with a subscription service where I have so much control. Let's say, for example, that you've got something against pork chops. Every month, Adam and his team send around a survey that allows you to say, Hey, I don't want pork chops this month. Or, I don't want pork chops ever again. Or, a more reasonable request, I'd love it if you could include pork chops in my delivery every month. Preferences change, diets change, and special requests and cuts are always on your mind at certain times of the year and Near Country gets that. They bend over backwards to help meet your changing needs. Head over to nearcountry.com and enter the code BARCART, all one word, that's B-A-R-C-A-R-T, when you sign up for your subscription to receive two free pounds of bacon or ground beef in your first delivery. And believe me, you'll be glad that you did. Now back to the show. And that's a parallel type of logic, right? One set of things up here, one set of things down here, they don't touch or intersect. And what I find interesting about some of the trends and the ideas and the executions that you've been describing so far is that you're trying to take those two things and kind of cross them uh, in, in sort of what I would call a logical chiasmus. And whenever I see logic, like logic structures like that, and and somebody who comes along goes, well, what if we go like this and Uh completely kind of bend these things into one another? That's where I get really interested. So taking that notion of privilege in cocktails, because I think privilege and cocktails are intimately intertwined and perhaps maybe inextricable. But taking that Notion of privilege and cocktails, uh, you know, how has that continued to inform your work? One obvious intersection seems to be the the idea of sea sea level rise.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, th- that's an amazing observation. I think you, it, it's it's a key point, and I think one of the things that certainly at the beginning that that was a lot of the motivation was to try and smash those two worlds together and, and demonstrate that they're actually not a dichotomy. But I think what's kind of happened as we've been working is you know luxury is, is 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 a thing that evolves it's not a static definition and I think there has been a lot that's like shaped as a result of our world opening up you know I think one of the the key things around it was the the, the kind of coverage and the education around kind of drinks there was this desire to include more people into the world of it and as a result of that it's it, it's opened up spaces it's opened up the people not only who work in the industry, but the people we end up talking to. And so it's ended up creating a much wider and larger landscape. And, you know, that's exciting for us because it means that, you know, I, I always talk about the fact that White Lion had to happen in London at that time. You know, there's probably a handful of other places that it could have happened, but actually from a legal point of view of what we were doing as work, London was one of the few places that enabled it. But you know, there were so many other bar ideas that that I had, which would have been relevant then and not relevant now. And in, in the same way that as things are evolving, any work, any communication, any creative output needs to play to that audience. And yes, of course, it's, it's trying to take people in certain directions, It's not about that here and now. But I think as these things have evolved, as there's been different spaces have opened up, different opportunities have opened up. And that's really informed the work that we do. I mean, I think you reference things like the sea level aspect of the work that we did in Amsterdam. You know, the relationship with with a literal changing landscape, um, and the, the the kind of things that are happening. And the wonderful thing about exploring a topic like that is it affects so much. I always think that you know, food and drink is at the center of so many different aspects of of human nature. But it touches. You know, when we were researching that that kind of topic, we were everything from agriculture to geopolitics to to engineering to biomimicry all of these wonderful things were were kind of coming into play because it was such a like shifting space it was created it was a new area and that allowed like us to do so much kind of interesting research and the same thing is happening in in kind of lots of different parts of of the business you know we get to to kind of explore different things you know with you talked about privilege with seed library we're we're exploring where does our bias sit where are our knowledge sets re- like kind of restricted by our kind of upbringing our our kind of background of work you know all of the things that get covered in the canon of cocktails you know we're trying to like unlearn a lot of things and realize what we kind of you know what do we put as an echo chamber around ourselves um and i think it's it's really it, it's, it's a wonderful time for the industry and you know, this is what we're trying to do through, through the company is see where these kind of opportunities and bridges are. Who are the people that we can collaborate with? What are the spaces that we, which we can learn from a very different perspective? Because things have shifted so much. We're in a really kind of talk about different golden ages of the cocktail, but the, the world has never been more connected as it, is, as it is now. And, you know, the ability to, you know, I always talk about the internet being one of, you know, humankind's greatest inventions because it connects us, you know, it's a repository for all knowledge, but it also allows us to go, it doesn't matter about uh, location. We can talk to somebody on the other side of the the, the Atlantic ocean and, you know, learn something and and have those interactions that help us maybe think differently on something. And I think that's where things have got really interesting for us at the moment is how can we, um, you know, smash together different perspectives, different definitions, um, that we previously could ever have learned from, um, and I think you know being able to work and operate out of different countries, different cultures has has kind of added a, a kind of a further layer uh, to that exploration that we can do.
0: This leads me to a question that I hadn't passed your way in in the list of questions that I sent you, but i I think this might be a useful time to ask about. Your thoughts on educating your staff. I mean, this is, you know, something that we've touched on in brief a few times already in this conversation. But what strikes me is that the creative process that you've described on a certain, you know, number of levels here is very different than the one that I think of, or the one that almost certainly takes place at most bars that have a cocktail program. And I'm wondering if you've seen that approach to creativity scale across the people that come through your programs as they go on to pursue other opportunities? Uh, is that something that you've noticed at all? And like and, and what does that look like? You know, is is there in other words, could I spot a, a a lion bartender or bar manager from across the room, or could could I could I see the fingerprint of a of someone from the lion program uh, by by looking at a menu or or the design of, of a bar? Perhaps well, there's
1: it's probably like a couple of answers. One is obviously I hope so. You know that's what we want to do for the company is is kind of tee things up for people to go on and do do their own things. But I think it's probably a bit of yes and no because it is trying to open up a different creative process and. You know, in our trainings, we always try and make it more of a dialogue rather than like we're just pushing information on people. And because they're empowered and able to, to kind of take on this different way of thinking, it's something that we've talked to a lot of different creative industries about as well. We've done this talk for, you know, like big companies like Nike to go, how do you think on, how do you empower your creative process? Because creativity is something that's applicable to every single com- company, not just creative companies. And so we, we try to, to kind of set up this, this methodology, this framework on how you empower creativity. And as a result of that, as people have left, I think, in one sense, hopefully they've maintained that and adopted it. And I'm so proud to see all of the amazing work that you know our, our kind of extended family have continued to do around the world. Um, but the key thing about it is it's also enabling their own personal creativity and interests. So it might not be that you can see the signature because it's then being applied to their work. But the fact that, and I I can't take credit because they're all brilliant people. So they would have smashed it anyway. So it's hard to know whether, um, you know, this has become something that they've kind of maintained. But it is the bit that we were so hopeful people would copy. You know, it was the thing that I was like, this is what, don't take away from all of the bars, the ingredients we use, the style of drinks we put out. Like, we've tried to talk so much about this whole creative empowerment. That's the thing that you should start applying in your venues.
0: Okay, then. That's a, 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 a perfect answer. Uh, but B, it, it makes me want to press you for maybe some examples. So you, you mentioned earlier that... You know, you, you want people at all levels to be involved in this creative process? So mm-hmm. what happens when you're having I, I imagine there's some sort of meeting or creative session, right? What happens when you get a bar back, a brand new bar back, been with the company a week, has an idea, doesn't have good communication skills? Like how, how do you how do you take somebody who's really coming in at the very beginning of that creative process and scaffold them up to the point where they're able to form a complete idea and then partner with other members of your team at higher levels of the company structure to actually turn it into a reality. Because at the end of the day, that does have to have some Downhill effort from you in order to make that sort of environment possible. I don't know if that makes any sense.
1: No, it, it does, and I think you 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 touched on it as the the key part. It is about um, collaboration. So we do it as a full group. So somebody can throw into the the kind of ring just a tiny observation. So I'll, I'll try and give a more concrete example. I, I'm going back to dead projects, but it's a, it's an easy way of talking about because they come to mind. So for example, with uh, I think it was Dan Lyon menu three, and it was the, the vices of botany or one of it. It was like, you know, we gave them very loose topics. I think we said hunter, gatherer, shaman, explorer. And whatever that meant to them. You know, I, I came from a biology and uh, kind of fine art background. I know the things that I'm gonna go research. I know what those words mean to me. I know the the type of synonyms that they kind of conjure. So I will. I know I'm gonna go start researching certain things, but because you've got a team, and that was a team of 32 at that time, um, and they were such diverse backgrounds, different cultures, different, like, you know, ages, different, like, backgrounds, you'd have everybody research, you know, you've got a musician, a mathematician, an architect in the team, you've got somebody who's kind of like, just grown up through the industry, and is, you know, just, uh, like, been in kind of different facets of of kind of the, the food and drink world, they're going to research completely different things. and because they're not there to start looking for flavors. That's not the point. It's to try and look for what does that association, what does that mean to you? What is a, a story that connects to that starting word? Then, then that person, you know, they might have a language barrier. They might not be great at communicating their emotions around it, but they can throw in an observation, and from there, as a group, we'll start to tease out what's interesting about that. What about that do we think is got a relevancy to it? It has to have something that you know, the every person can connect to. So then we'll start um, kind of like, kind of delving deeper into that story. We might find a a little hook that felt really interesting. There was, um, in that, there was a, a story about pirates and piracy and how actually a lot of the the kind of like, the, the key successes in that were actually led by women. And, you know, there was amazing stories of some of the, the, Obviously, not a, a necessarily chirpy topic of piracy, but you know there was some incredible human stories that were coming out of it, and from that we can start to flesh out something that feels quite robust or interesting as a fact. You know, one of the ones that we came across was how Popeye was created as propaganda. So it was propaganda to encourage people to eat more spinach because they found that spinach was super high in iron, and they were like, "Oh my god, this is a superfood. We need to get the public eating." spinach so they created this cartoon character that became superhuman by eating spinach but the amazing thing about it was it was based on a mistake the person who was doing the calculations got the decimal point wrong so the amount of iron in spinach yes it's fine it's a it's it's a good leafy green vegetable to eat but it was out by a factor of 10 and so they created this whole propaganda based on a mistake and it's just like a wonderful bit of whimsy that we can include to you know, get somebody kind of go, Oh, cool. That's a nice little fun story. And a fact, and we can then break down, you know, ingredients. It wasn't just about then throwing spinach and olive oil or whatever it was into that drink, just because those are a kind of like easy pullouts from, from the story. It was about then having something that people can ask, well, why, you know, ultimately they should just get a great drink and it delivers. And it, it's expected in terms of the flavor profile I can read on the drinks menu. But there was all of these other layers to it. And that can be composed as a result of that process and that collaboration with with all members of the team. Hope that covers it. It's, it's quite hard. It's quite a big process to talk through. So yeah. hopefully that kind of covers the point.
0: Well, I, I think what it reminds me of is the difference between deductive or top-down thinking and inductive or bottom-up thinking. And what you're describing is very much a, a master class, which, Maybe we should mention now in bottom <laughs> up or inductive thinking where you're going around and, and and you're not going in with any assumptions. You know, you, you're going in and you're gathering data and you're you're trying to see what's there instead of trying to enforce your idea of what's there on the menu or on the on the drinks themselves. So um, I, I think that's a great example. And uh, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm honestly sort of jealous of, of all your employees. It sounds like an, <laughs> an amazing uh, place to, to play around and explore ideas. But I, I'd love to turn our attention at this phase of the interview to some of the more recent things you've done, uh, as well as some of the things that you're excited about. Uh, one of those uh, recent may be a, uh, a bit of an overstatement. However, the pandemic has certainly kind of warped our perspective of time. And, and uh, you know, one of the things that I noticed about, you know, cocktail education over the pandemic is that it seems to have been dominated by this one amazing masterclass that you and Lynette Marrero put together. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it was it, the masterclass with Lynette was such a joy to put together. I think one of the funny things about it was it was very serendipitous timing. Uh, We even had some people being like, Oh, my God, did you time that to to kind of launch around the pandemic? And I was like, No, that would be a quite sinister and B, you know, the the amount of work that went into it was was enormous. So it was it was planned long before that. But it was, you know, I was so thankful to hear the responses to, you know, all of the people around the world. And I became friends with 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 some of the people who took the class and you know, the pickup was was incredible. I mean, I can't speak highly enough of the, the Masterclass team. They are, you know, one of the most professional outfits I've ever interacted with. They were absolutely amazing to work with. And, you know, we had so many conversations between Lynette and I with Masterclass team as a, as a circle, trying to work out, you know, I think we all shared this vision of trying to make this useful to people. It wasn't about us talking about what we do in our venues and you know of course there was a bit of our own personal philosophies that was being reflected in it but it was about going you know we all I, I you know i really believe better than any other food stuff cocktails can help shape or balance or bolster or contrast your mood and how could we open up that idea how could we get you know the every person using cocktails as part of their lives how do we get it as a way of socializing as a way of you know, winding down after a tough day, you know, it should be something that gives people, you know, a, a sense of uh, pride because they're crafting something. It's something to reflect their own tastes and personalities, but it's also just a wonderful tool for bringing people together. And, you know, with with that series, we, we tried to find a way of being as thorough as possible. You know, there's so much learning that goes on, but we tried to give a framework that meant people could feel empowered they could take away that information and make it their own. And so we put a lot of work into trying to understand what would be the best things to, you know, in a something that is a, a, a finite product, how could we have something that felt as, you know, useful as possible. And it was incredible to see the, the reaction to it. I was surprised by so much of it. I mean, we put some more complicated things in there. I mean, one of the the the, i suppose key drinks from the company was the the beeswax old-fashioned it's a you know it's not a simple like put these two ingredients together and you've got a drink you know it involves prep it involves a bit of sourcing of some kind of more difficult ingredients but the fact that it became one of the most you know particularly from my drinks the you know the it was the most kind of repeated drink you know it was the drink that Saw the most comments in the the kind of like instruction book. It was the most ones that people tagged on Instagram. And I was amazed to see that. And the fact that, you know, you had all these people reach out and we had a huge pickup. I think it's still one of the highest rated classes on the platform. And you had people going, you know what, during lockdown, it was really tough and it was tough for everybody. But the fact that it could be an opportunity for escape, an opportunity for connection for people during a time when that was really needed was something I was hugely proud of. Um and you know education is always a tough thing it's something that I you know would love to do more of but to be able to have something that felt like it resonated and connected that much was was you know it was one of my proudest moments.
0: Speaking on education you know you've obviously educated entire bar teams of 30 plus people across multiple bars on multiple continents and you also on the other hand have sort of turned your lens to speak to home bartenders with this masterclass and i'm wondering if there's if there's any one or two little core teachings or learnings that you always find yourself returning to that are sort of like your 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 pet like cocktail <laughs> wisdom nuggets that you always find yourself trying to to impart on folks.
1: Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I think one that I've kind of tried to hammer home is it's is balance isn't just about, you know, the the established, you know, kind of opposing forces. It's not about sweet and sour and, you know, strong and weak. It's yes, of course about the things in the glass, but it's it's so much wider and one of the things that i've tried to talk to bartenders and home bartenders alike is is think on the practicalities what's the occasion you're catering to what are the things that you want you know this is what drinks are great for they can shape that and of course you can contrast miserable day outside you want to be transported to a you know tropical island but how can you think on that practicality you know it's so often i'd have friends who were like i'm doing a dinner party can you give me a margarita recipe i was like yes but also no, because you're going to be stuck in the kitchen shaking margaritas while your guests are around the dinner table. What about something that actually enables you to sit down? You can prepare in advance, and you can then sit and enjoy. And it still gives that brightness, that sense of fun, and all those things that you associate with that drink. So I think a lot of the the things that I try and encourage is is that. And of course, there's no stopping point for it because you know that sense of balance is all the things that you can control you know, in a home setting, you might not want to get fanatical about, you know, the weight of your glass or the the, the way that people approach the drink and the positioning of the garnish and all of those minutiae of details that we can get geeky about in the bar. But you do want to think about the practicalities, what it allows you to, to kind of do and how does it reflect your own taste and what you want to display to your guests. But obviously for the for the bar side of things, you know, money might seem the limiting factor but actually there is so much we can control without needing to have a giant budget and you can start making informed choices and thinking about balance in a in a, a really like nuanced way you can push the details to such a tiny degree and you know that's where things get really exciting as a professional
0: yeah i like the notion That because it it seems like you've boiled it down to almost a mantra is that balance isn't just sweet and sour, strong and weak. It's all the things that you can control, which is it's a type of holism. It's a type of you know overarching mindset, and I think that's something that absolutely our listeners can take and apply to their own cocktail project. So thank you for sharing that. Knowing all that we know now about your projects, your ethos, your background? What are you excited about moving forward? What are some of the big projects that are on your plate that you'd like to share with our listeners?
1: I mean, there's, there's so many things that we kind of like initiate. So we'll start doing various different projects and we keep a lot of those close, not because we're just trying to be secret about it, but because over the years, we've found that some things don't come to life you know, we might explore something, we might start eking out an idea and then realize that it's not right, or the situation's changed, or it just isn't possible. So there's a few things that, you know, I am hopeful for that we've started to explore. And they look at things from education, they look at, you know, those those bigger macro things that we're trying to affect as change. You know, I think it's, uh, I, I talked about, you know, viability of, of of longevity in our industry and it's it's something that I'm 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 still very passionate about. And you know, trying to also encourage as as wide a group as possible to to consider a career in the industry is, is is something I'm still very passionate about. But it's also down to to kind of things that were are I mean a little bit more personal. You know, we're we're doing some work on our 10th anniversary, which is coming up this year, which is absolutely bonkers to me. We're doing some work on again a a bit of education of going. How do we look at ways of not just for our industry, but important big topics? You know, how do we look at the stability of our food in a in a kind of wider sense? How do we make sure that we're being as kind of considered and considerate in every decision that we make? And you know, it's trying to display the fact that that's not something that is. About luxury and it's not something about a certain set of people it's something that we all it it sounds kind of too heavy to say we have a responsibility to it we we do (laughs) but we it is actually something that you know i often talk about the fact that it becomes something that's kind of creatively empowering and is a big growth when we start kind of folding those decisions into our everyday lives and so it's trying to work out ways in which we can kind of empower people to kind of again, it's not about giving the answers. It's about talking about the framework so they can take ownership and apply it to their own personal problems or, or situation or desires, all of those things. So that, that education piece is, is, is something that we're trying to put a lot into. And I'm excited for this year that we're going to be able to, to travel to places that we haven't been to in the past to start kind of having those conversations for us to learn, for us to pass on some of our learnings to, to kind of a, a big set of people.
0: You know, as you were describing, you know, the heaviness of responsibility, it, it's not it's, it's not sexy to have responsibilities. But isn't it sexy to walk out or to walk into a place and see people taking responsibility and, and sort of be inspired to be like, oh, maybe I should uh, maybe I can take a few notes here like that. There's something actively sexy about that. So 100%. Well, Ryan, is there anything else you wanted to make sure we cover before we jump into a, a couple of quick lightning round questions?
1: Um, I think I touched on the idea of um, like the fun of, of the bars rather than the, the, the kind of, I suppose the headlines that people hear about it. But I think, you know, there's, there's a very different kind of image I, I, I expect. Um, You know, I, and I, I say that having had people kind of come to the bars and, Go, oh, this is not what I expected. I thought it was going to be much more like a lab and much more kind of like kind of heavy conversation. And I am obviously biased, but we have the best teams in the world. And the thing to me that is is kind of really special about those projects. And and the thing that we wanted to do was was create platforms for the for the teams to shine. That that was all we ever wanted to do when we were creating these venues. Is, is to allow these kind of like you know hopefully address these difficult topics but let them kind of like breathe ownership into the space and i'm you know now we're hitting 10 years on it's you know we we started compiling a list of like you know some of the people that have been through the company and all of the different projects they're doing now and it was just kind of remarkable to look at this huge set of people and we haven't even exhausted we haven't got to the bottom of the list yet being able to see all these things that have kind of happened you know, and we've been able to interact with over, over those 10 years. And, you know, it's, it, it's something that I'm, I'm very hopeful starts to become the kind of norm in in kind of bars and, and things now is where you get that sense of both um, acknowledging all the people that have kind of come through it, but, but also giving them the the space and the keys to kind of like take these venues and and, and let them, Run away with it. I think that's where businesses get really exciting. Is is where you let the people who are the true business. You know, it's not me. I'm you know, it, it's much more about the, the the kind of people who are actually kind of in the spaces. And I'm yeah, very excited to see the industry kind of help promote and and kind of shift the conversation towards towards those people.
0: Brilliant, brilliant. Well. For those of our listeners who are hyper-local here to D.C., obviously uh, Silver Lion is the place to go to to, to get the, the true temperature check on, on, a, on a Lion, a genuine Lion property. But for now, let's hit a couple of quick lightning round questions. First one... Desert Island scenario, uh, <laughs> we'll keep it very uh, sort of like lion themed here. I'm just going to say Desert Island, interpret that however you'd like. Yep. You get to bring one bottle of spirits and uh, you get to you have either the materials to make or a, a you know handily batched version of any cocktail. What is your bottle and what is your cocktail?
1: So my bottle is <laughs> a bottle of scotch that is now frighteningly expensive and exceedingly hard to get hold of. Um I was very fortunate to taste it through a friend Sakinda Singh of the the Whiskey Exchange. But it's a nineteen sixty-four Fino Phenocask. The most bafflingly complex thing, and I think one of the most wonderful reflections of, of human art I've ever come across. I, I mean I'd love to have an endless supply of that anyway, but Desert Island Dram, I can <laughs> I can live with that forever. And cocktail I mean, my, my usual cocktail is a a kind of scotch and soda. And I, I love the complexity of just a a simple blended scotch with water. But I think given that setting and kind of, again, that wonderful reflection of complexity through simplicity, it would be a daiquiri. And I think it's, it's a drink that, you know, a scotch and soda is a great kind of aperitif and I can session it and it's, it's, it's wonderfully, um, you know, it's got a lot of room through it, but the Daiquiri just kind of covers so many different scenarios and so many different needs that you can almost kind of pay attention to different facets of it, given whatever day or mood you're in at that point. And if it's going to have to be my forever cocktail, I think it's the one that's going to give me the most um, breathing room. So classic Daiquiri um, yeah. and old more.
0: Brilliant, brilliant. Yes, I, I, I think the daiquiri. It's 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 funny when you think of cocktails where you know the role of ice and dilution plays the biggest role. It's it's very tempting to jump straight to a martini. Yeah, but I think the daiquiri is actually one level more sophisticated in terms of what can be done with this simple act of taking ice and being very careful and intentional about how you dilute and aerate that drink. So I I think a a daiquiri is a a lovely, lovely answer there. Um, Next question, cocktail with anyone in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you enjoy? Just sort of paint us a picture.
1: Um, Whatever I've been kind of asked, like, you know, person living or dead, like it's, it's, it's it's always been David Bowie. Um, And I've thought about this. I actually, I don't know if you can see it in the background. I've got the, one of the Ziggy Stardust kind of like prints that hang on the wall. And, you know, the thing I've always enjoyed about, I mean, love the music, love the style, but his kind of care to not care about kind of a boundary or, or whatever it is, what's shifting around, like his understanding that things evolve and you evolve with it and you shift and you, you morph. And and, and, and that was always something that was a very like important kind of like observation to particularly, a, a, you know, a young artist when I was really getting into to kind of Bowie. Um, the difficulty is working out where, because it's, you know, you know, are you in Berlin? Are you in New York? Are you in London? Um, you know, all of those different times of which Bowie was a different person. Um, but I think there would be something, you know, his his ability to to kind of think wide I think it would be nice to be in somewhere that was was really quite timeless. And I think some of the, the London hotels, they are, you know, those hotel bars are, you know, I think London does hotel bars better than anywhere else in the world. There's something really magical about them. And I think, you know, being able to be in something that felt luxurious and kind of had a timelessness to it, but weirdly they don't feel too heavy. Um, I think there is a, you know, a, a light elegance to their service that, You know, in those five-star hotels, you know the Connaught, the Savoy, Dukes, Claridges, being in something that like felt, yeah, had enough that we could kind of have a meandering chat and share some drinks. Uh, Yeah, I think that would have been a a wonderful thing to have been able to do.
0: Yeah, you're you're even you're even. Sort of walking through your creative process right here with that answer. You're, you're creating dichotomies and and uh, you know trying to put juxtapositions in in the in the glass just with your answer. So Ryan, I mean, I've had a blast. Uh, it, it's a privilege to spend an hour with you, getting to know you, getting to understand how your mind works and how your programs operate. And uh, I'm really grateful for the insights that you've shared. So. Um, thank you for what you do. Uh, I know that there's a lot of people in the industry who would also line up right beside me here in DC if I could have a, a collection of bartenders queued up behind me. I, I know you have a lot of fans here. So thank you for all that you've done. And thank you most importantly for being my guest here on the Modern Bar
1: Cart Podcast. Thank you so much. It's it's very mutual and it's been such a joy to chat through. And your observations, it's, yeah, it's, it's always nice to chat where it helps you think differently on your your own work as you have the conversation as well. So it's very, very sweet of you. And I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful to have been here.
0: Cheers, Ryan. Amazing. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if They don't download podcasts. They can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start... This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, cocktail and bar insights courtesy of Mr. Lion, Ryan Chetiawardena, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2023.